This is Christopher Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance talking about community broadband networks on the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Today, we're talking with Catherine Rice, the president of CETOA, the Southeastern Association of Telecommunications Officers and Advisors. Catherine has been one of the strongest voices in North Carolina to preserve local authority over broadband and documenting the ways in which AT&T, Time Warner Cable, CenturyLink, and others have hurt local communities by raising prices and generally refusing to upgrade their networks. Without Catherine fighting for North Carolina, CenturyLink and Time Warner Cable could have had their monopolistic legislation for far fewer campaign contributions than it ultimately took. Here's the interview with Catherine Rice. I'm here with Catherine Rice, president of CITOA. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure, Chris. So CITOA is a, is a branch of NUTOA, and I'm hoping you can start with a little uh, description of, of what CITOA is. Well, CITOA um, is, a, as you said, a chapter of NUTOA, and we consist of um, local government uh, broadband planners and community programmers um, in the four states of North and South Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia. You've been very active in defending the right of local communities in North Carolina uh, to build their own broadband networks if they decide that's a wise investment. Can you tell me a little bit about the background of why that's important and uh, and how Time Warner Cable has been uh, fighting against you on this? Well, sure. And um, it's important to know the context of North Carolina's population first, Chris. Um, half our population live in rural areas and as globalization first took hold in the last 25 years of the 20th century, North Carolina lost its tobacco and its textile and its manufacturing jobs overseas to Asia and Mexico. So in the first part of the 21st century, in two uh, North Carolina towns, those local governments did what they're supposed to do. They had to figure out how to keep their citizens employed and how to maintain the community's quality of life. So both of those towns concluded that the only way they could compete in, in this kind of world market, really the only way they could open up their labor market to the world and tap their strongest resource, which is North Carolina's ability to innovate, was to build the next generation of roads into their communities, that being fiber to the home. So both Wilson and Salisbury um, approached the local incumbents and asked them to partner in building this infrastructure and in both communities, ultimately, the offer was declined. Um, and rather than partner or upgrade their outdated networks, what Time Warner and CenturyLink and AT&T did was go to the state legislature for the next four years and push for legislation that would prohibit, effectively prohibit uh, community broadband. So in 2007, um, which was the first year they hit us with a bill, and mind you, in 2006, they had succeeded in getting their industry completely deregulated by our state legislators. The next year, they came back um, with HB 1587, which was titled the Local Government Fair Competition Act. Now, I remind you, these are multi-billion dollar companies, and these are very tiny high unemployment towns. Um, the next year was 2009, uh, age 1252. That was called the Level Playing Field Bill, an act to regulate competition. Um, 
but we succeeded in flipping that to a study bill as well. Then in 2010, um, in the fall, uh, a bill that was subtitled the No Competing System Bill, which we subtitled as the Moratorium Bill, uh, SB 1209, that was sponsored um, by the industry again. Um, we were able to push that to the side. Um, and then we had a, a huge event, which was in November, there was a change in the control of our House and our Senate, um, and 100 years of Democratic control went to a Republican majority. So in January of 2011, um, HB 129, which was named the Level Playing Field Local Government Competition Bill, an act to create jobs, <laughs> was introduced. Um, the first bill we saw was in February. Uh, the Senate version was in draft 17. Uh, that's the first draft we saw. Um, and so that bill was introduced in both the House and the Senate around February, and it became law May 21st. You mentioned that the state government switched hands from historically being um, at least divided to being wholly in the hands of, of a Republican majority. Was that an important part of of this change that Time Warner Cable was finally able to make? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't just Time Warner Cable. It's also CenturyLink, um, who was very heavy-handed in this last version uh, that became law. We were able to um, get a careful analysis of these bills when they were introduced every year under Democratic leadership, under a Democratic uh, majority. Um, but when it flipped to Republican control, that all disappeared. And I think that this bill was probably the second one introduced um, in, the, in a brand new legislative year with a brand new majority. Um, so it really did feel like um, the, the money that was used to get people elected was going to be rewarded with a bill. Um, and it certainly felt that way. We, we couldn't touch it. Um, we just couldn't touch it at all. And yet it kept getting refined and more refined by both CenturyLink and Time Warner as, as the bill went through committee. Right. I recall them saying that they were working on compromises and they were trying to, the people who were pushing the bill, they said, we're, we're compromising. And it sounded like uh, you weren't the one they were compromising with. Well, I can tell you about the very first meeting. Um, Representative Avila uh, held a meeting because the public pushback was so loud, um, and it had the, there was we were in a room, and the the city representatives were on one side, and the industry representatives were on the other, and she spent the first three or four minutes criticizing the cities. Um, in whatever way she could think of. And then she said, um, now I, I really don't feel like I'm a communication specialist. I need to have this meeting run by a person I think is, is really an expert in communications. I'm going to hand the meeting over to Mark Traden. Well, Mark Traden is the, um, one of the lobbyists, one of the top lobbyists for Time Warner Cable. He actually runs the North Carolina Cable Television Association out of his office. Um, and he was going to run the meeting. <laughs> so that negotiation uh, wasn't much of a negotiation. Um, and I have a, a feeling that's really how it was every time even Wilson and Salisbury um, went into those kind of meetings. And you can see it in the law. It's, it's, there's micro detail on literally what streets Salisbury can and can't serve. The um, the role of money, I think, is is really important in in terms of campaign contributions in this. And and you're right. I often simplify this to talking about Time Warner Cable, but you're right to correct me and remind us all that AT&T, CenturyLink, 
uh, and other cable providers um, all put money in. The National Institute on Money and State Politics uh, had a follow-the-money report in which they documented the ways in which the, the private carriers, uh, Time Warner Cable, CenturyLink, and others put so much money into the political process. Uh, we also know from an article in The New Yorker that Art Pope uh, put a ton of money into this. And so it really seems like in North Carolina, the legislature was focused on representing the interests of a few uh, major corporations rather than the interests of the public. Uh, and so I'm curious if you have any examples of of people who have been left out um, and, and are not getting the broadband they need even after this bill was passed when supposedly it would create jobs and new investment. Well, I do, but I just to follow up on your comment, um, in, in North Carolina, you are correct, the problem absolutely is Art Pope. Um, everyone knows he controls the leadership of the new Republican majority. We were told when we were lobbying against H-129 um, by one Republican representative who was trying to be helpful. He said, you know, if you want to change this bill, talk to Art Pope. We, we thought he was kidding, um, but he was not. Um, and I really encourage anybody listening to this podcast to go to artpopeexposed.com. It talks all about him. As, as you mentioned, it's, there's an October 2011 New Yorker issue called State for Sale that where you, you learn that he's actually a very close friend of the, of the Koch brothers. Together they formed and um, run various front groups, Americans for Prosperity is one, Heartland Institute is another. Heartland is very heavily funded by these large billion dollar private sector companies. Um, ironically, Pope inherited his fortune um, by uh, inheriting a, a chain of dollar stores. They're called Variety Wholesalers and they specifically locate these stores in African American and low income areas in North Carolina. So it's pretty ironic to see that, that that money is actually being used to pursue policies which directly target the removal of those people's, pretty much their civil rights to participate in our democracy. So Art Pope has um, another group that he's the 80% funder for. It's called the John Locke Foundation. John Locke employees are all over um, the offices of the leadership in our Senate and our House. They um, not so long ago, ago formed... Um, with the Americans for Prosperity, uh, another group called the Coalition for a New Economy. And guess what one of the top issues is for the southeastern chapter of the Coalition for a New Economy? It's against municipal broadband. <laughs> right. They were very active in Georgia and South Carolina, and we suspect they're going to be pushing in Florida to make their laws even worse. So um, that's big money. That's big money, Chris. And um, we... There's just got to be a lot of education and a lot of organizing at the grassroots level to, to educate people on, on what this all really means for their lives. And that gets into um, your other question, which is how does it translate um, in people's homes? And like I said, half of North Carolina is rural, and these are the areas where these large companies have admitted publicly they have no interest in serving them. I've heard them tell rural county managers that, hey, you know, you, your homes in your county are too far apart and your people don't make enough money for us to invest. Um, so what we're seeing is parents having to drive their kids every day, 20 minutes away, to find a cell tower where they can use an air card and upload their kids' homework every day and then 20 minutes back. 
And I've had people who, who won't let me talk about their situation because they're worried that if it gets out that their home doesn't have broadband, they won't be able to sell their house. There are school districts that know that parents are sitting in their parking lots feeding off of the Wi-Fi. And so those school districts are tempering their adoption of digital um, training in their curriculum because they know that even while they're giving these kids free computers, the kids are going home and they can't use them. <laughs> right. So when your child is trying to get an education in order to compete in this global market where all these other people are getting plenty of speed and plenty of access to the Internet and developing the software and understanding the software, we are, we are hurting ourselves. Yeah, I want to read a quote, actually, from um, during this, this discussion um, of the, over the bill when, the, when your governor was contemplating whether or not to veto it, uh, which she ended up not doing, Governor Purdue. Um, the uh, a vice president of Red Hat, which is a software company, uh, Michael Tiemann, and this is a pretty major software company, uh, wrote her a letter, and I want to just quote from that. He said, I spent more than two years begging Time Warner to sell me a service that costs 50, 50 times more than it should. And that's after I agreed to pay 100% of the installation costs for more than a mile of fiber. So as, as we see in this letter and we've seen from your stories, people are not being served in the, in the communities and businesses are not able to expand the way they should be able to. And yet we see these bills coming through and they limit the authority of communities to build networks. One of the things that they often say is, is that if a community is truly underserved or not served, that it's exempt from the law. And so I want to ask you about the exemptions that we've seen in North Carolina, and, uh, and then if we have time, maybe South Carolina. Well, this is why I say that CenturyLink needs to be given full credit for its overreach. Um, there, are, there is an exemption in our law, um, and it's a joke. Um, the reason I say it's a joke is because um, the, what the exemption is is that if, uh, if your area is unserved, you are not subject to these onerous regulations that they've put on communities that want to provide their own broadband. And that definition is that if 50% in the households by census block do not have access to 768 kilobyte service down or only can get high-speed internet access through satellite, then they're considered exempt. The reason I say it's a joke is because CenturyLink knows, because it's involved in the NTIA mapping process, that they do not measure census blocks by household. They do not measure broadband by households. They measure it by census block, such that if there's one home in a census block that the industry who's providing the data, if they, if they conclude that they can provide that service within seven to 10 business days, that home is considered served, even if it's not served. And if there's one home in that census block that's served, they get to say that all the households in the census block are served. So what you get is an enormous exaggeration on the level of homes being, well, of area being served. 
Right. And to spell that out, what would I have to do if I was uh, a local government or a community and I wanted to uh, build a network in an area that I recognized there was a need um, and there was a tremendous amount of unserved? What would I have to go through in order to make that proof to the legislature that uh, that the area was unserved? In essence, what you have to do is your own survey, and it's, it would be a home-by-home home survey, which is very, very expensive, because you would have to collect your own data, because the NTIA data right now is, is just so over-exaggerated. The other problem with that is, even if you were able to um, cull together thousands of kind of spots of these census blocks, you don't get to incorporate higher density areas that it takes to actually make the system viable. And the industry knows this. You, you have to couple higher density areas with lower density areas in, a, in order for the numbers to, to work. The exemption is dead in the water. Right, and we see a similar exemption uh, in quotation marks in South Carolina, don't we? Yes, and believe it or not, it's actually worse. <laughs> Um, I had to read this one a couple times. It, it was like a little bit of time that passed between when our bill became law and when this bill was uh, introduced in South Carolina. They 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 looked at it really carefully because they introduced basically it was our bill and they they figured out oh we didn't go far enough. Um, what I noticed in the South Carolina law is that there are two exemptions. Um, the first exemption is you have to prove you're a persistent poverty county. And what that is is in a county where 20% of the population exceeds the national poverty rate for 30 years. So you have to show you're a persistent poverty county. County, And if you're a persistent poverty county, then um, you have to show that 75% of the households in the census tract have no access to 768 kilobyte down. Um, otherwise known as the FCC's Broadband Tier 1 service, or they only get satellite service. Um, the other exemption is any other kind of county. In any other kind of county, um, you have to show that 90% of the households in each individual census block do not have access to 768K down or only have broadband through satellite service. So um, the other trick, and I've just told you about the problem with trying to measure by household, it's the, the data's not out there, so they'd have to get their own data. Um, the exemptions have dropped dead dates, which have nothing to do with when the filing is made by the local community. Um, it has to do with certain FCC actions. You know, the fact that you've gone through it is one of the things that they're trying to do is they're trying to waste your time because we know that no one's going to try and build a network under these conditions. Uh, and they, they just come up with these incredibly convoluted things that the only purpose seems to be is for them to allow themselves to tell reporters lies and know that the reporters don't have the time or the capacity to understand what is being said with uh, incredibly difficult language. Uh, I'm impressed well, that you were able to figure that out because we spent some time looking at it. And in the end, I just got a headache. Well, Chris, you know, it, it, it's really concerning that they set these deadlines based on whether or not the FCC changes their definition of broadband tier one. That's outside of anything a community is offering. If the FCC decides that, that people need more speed in order to participate in modern life, they, if they change that definition at all, then the exemptions have even a shorter lifetime. You're right. No, you're right. It's, it's, it's an important point. Um, 
it's it's just it's so incredibly frustrating that they get to to write all of these rules and that they're so convoluted that it's almost impossible for it to be a transparent process for the average person to understand the impact on them and and the future of their communities. Well, I think if you if you look at the language and the laws, it's so micro-designed by the industry that it tells you who had the influence over these legislators. Right. You're absolutely right. You had done some work on looking at the reaction of Time Warner Cable from Wilson. And I realize I'm just coming out of the blue with this, but I'm curious if you remember the, uh, the benefits that Wilson was seeing uh, in terms of price compared to its neighbors uh, who also had Time Warner Cable serving them. Oh, we did a, an interesting study a couple of years ago um, because when in 2006 the state legislature deregulated the cable industry, they deregulated it with the promise from the industry that prices would go down, customer service would go up, um, peg channels would flourish, cities would continue to be financially whole. Um, and in my community, I noticed that my cable prices kept going up. Um, so we did a little study, and what we looked at was um, uh, Time Warner serves um, not only Wilson, but uh, it also serves Raleigh and all these small communities surrounding Raleigh. And they're all served by the same head end with the same fiber optic backbone and with all the same programming. We looked at Time Warner's pricing in the communities that didn't have um, municipally uh, provided cable system with, um, compared to Wilson. And what we saw was an, an, an enormous phenomena that um, in Wilson, Time Warner's rates were somewhere in the range of sometimes 80, 90% lower than what we were being charged in the Raleigh and surrounding communities. It really looked like we were subsidizing. <laughs> Time Warner was taking our higher rates and subsidizing their rates in Wilson so they could drop their rates in Wilson lower than Wilson's and put Wilson out of business. So what you see is that municipal systems actually provide this kind of competitive force that we've been told uh, the industry should be engaged in. It actually works with municipal systems, not that that's their incentive. Their incentive is very much to increase the quality of life in their community. Um, but it is, the le it is legitimate competition, and the industry knows it, and that's why they want to get rid of these guys. Uh, I want to encourage people to learn more about exactly what happened in North Carolina, because the role of, of a few very powerful corporations controlling a legislature, I think, should concern all of us. And uh, we wrote about it quite a bit, referencing some of the excellent work that you did with CITOA. Uh, and if you go to muninetworks.org and you look for our tags and you click on North Carolina, you'll find tens of stories covering this. And it's really an important issue. It's not going away. We're going to see it in more states in the near future. So I hope people are, can be prepared for it. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Catherine. Chris, is there one more point I could make? Please. Which, um, it's really important um, that people understand this from an international perspective. What we're seeing is that the industry is basically bulldozing through these pro-monopoly, what I would call anti-advanced technology laws because of their deep pockets, because they have the money to, to finance the campaigns of these legislators. Um, they've concluded that it's much less expensive for them to hire lobbyists who push through these fake realities in these committees um, than to maintain or even upgrade their outdated plant. In the meantime, so we, what we end up with 
is, as the um, Open Technology Institute report has shown, in the United States, we're paying a lot more for a lot less than the rest of the world. But what concerns me is, while we're holding back our technology here in the U.S., China is building out fiber to the home with a vengeance. That's where North Carolina lost its jobs, and now they're building out fiber to the home with a vengeance. I think their plan is to get to 300 million homes by 2015. So from an international perspective, this is seriously hurting our country. Yes, that is a very important point, and I'm glad you brought it up. Um, you know, communities in North Carolina, South Carolina, um, in particular, need to be aware because um, other places may be able to rely on Verizon's FiOS to at least get beyond the basic DSL and cable architecture. But in North Carolina and South Carolina, communities are among the only ones who have been building these networks. Uh, also, co-ops and some nonprofits in, in your rural areas have done a good job, but the big private carriers, they have been refusing to do the proper investment. So thank you. Thank you so much, Catherine. And uh, we'll look forward to I'm sure we're going to have you on again. You're, you're a terrific guest. Thank you so much, Chris, and thank you for caring. Thank you. That was Catherine Rice, the president of CITOA. After our conversation ended, she wanted to make sure I alerted the audience to AT&T's admission that it had no solution to the rural broadband problem, something that we wrote about on muninetworks.org around the time Georgia's legislature was considering restricting local authority, back in February, January 2012-ish. Similarly, Verizon has stopped expanding Fios. With the private sector publicly admitting it has no solution for rural America, these state limitations on local authority have a very real and very negative consequence. She wanted me to say that industry's control of our state legislature is leading to a failure to develop the level of infrastructure that will allow us to compete with places like China who are full steam ahead with fiber to the home. It is seriously harming our country's future economic survival. Forget about beating leaders, we can't even follow. We're in the internet age. We are no longer in the manufacturing age. To learn more, visit our show page on muninetworks.org, where we have links to some of the materials discussed in the show. If you have any questions or comments, please tell us directly. Email podcast at muninetworks.org. Thanks to my colleague Lisa Gonzalez for putting the show together and Fit in the Conniptions for the music licensed using Creative Commons. The song is called Storms Over. Storms Over.